Spirit 88.9 FM. We are Catholic Radio for the Christian community. Good morning and welcome to Spirit Mornings with Bruce McGregor and Chris McGregor. Today, delighted to be joined again by Amy Wellburn, the award-winning author of the international bestseller, Decoding Da Vinci, uh, which of course exposes popular myths and misperceptions about Mary Magdalene and presents us with the woman who has stirred the Christian imagination and inspired the devotion of artists, saints, and sinners for a couple of thousand years. Uh, Where Decoding Da Vinci left off, Decoding Mary Magdalene begins. You today are going to learn the real truth, legend, and the lies about Mary Magdalene and what she can teach you today. Amy, thank you so much for being with us on our program. We're delighted to have an expert here. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here, as usual. This is the book that I have been waiting for since July. (laughs) Ever since you told us you were working on it, I have just been holding my breath. Oh, good. She didn't look very good purple. Oh, thanks, Bruce. Yes, it was (laughs) nice to be able to breathe again. (laughs) And listeners, you know, I've been talking about this for a couple weeks now, that this is the book to have, particularly when it comes to issues concerning Mary Magdalene, because I think this is a a woman, a figure that has been totally maligned and used for all kinds of causes. But we really owe it to her to discover who this person was. And Amy, I think you've done a great job of doing that. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. I think you put the issue very well, too. Well, she really is a figure that has been transformed and prefigured, and people have come up with, you know, throughout the last 2,000 years of who she may or may not have been. And I think, as always, you start at a very important point. What, what do we know? Right, and I think that's, that's the place to begin. What do we know about Mary Magdalene? We know from the Scriptures. Um, she's mentioned in the Gospels for the first time in Luke chapter 8 as one of a small group of women who accompanied Jesus and the disciples, um, as it says, providing for their needs. And we don't know exactly what that meant. Mm-hmm. It means that they did domestic work for the disciples or they provided uh, financially for them, which is a possibility, considering that one of the other women um, mentioned was a woman of rather high social status. And uh, so we hear about her then, and then we don't hear her name mentioned again, uh, read her name again, until uh, the Passion narratives. Mm-hmm. in which she is mentioned as being faithful and remaining at the cross, along with Mary, the mother of Jesus, and some other people, including John. And then in the resurrection narratives, of course, in all four Gospels, she is consistently mentioned as and described as the first person to encounter the empty tomb mm-hmm. and the risen Christ, and then to tell the apostles this good news. So that's what we know for sure about Mary Magdalene. Mm -hmm. There are many Marys in the Gospels. Yeah, and this was really almost from from the beginning, I'd say, you know, from the late 2nd century on. um, This was a—her identity was sort of a— People wanted to know more about her, obviously. They were intrigued by her, and they were intrigued by, as you say— the mentions of these other Marys in the Gospel, say Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus, for example, Mm -hmm. and even some unnamed women in the Gospels whose stories seemed to, you know, relate or be analogous in some sense to Mary Magdalene. Uh, For example, um, in the passage directly preceding the introduction of Mary Magdalene, at the end of Luke chapter 7, there's a story about a, a nameless woman, a sinner, coming to Jesus and in repentance and, you know, washing her his feet and, and drying them with her hair. And, you know, the 
very, as I said very early on, you know, the questions were raised in Christianity. Well, maybe this was Mary Magdalene. People weren't sure. Mm-hmm. When we go to look at the Gospels, as you point out in the beginning of the book, that we have been taught, if implicitly, to uh, be skeptical of the Gospels. So it's made it hard for us when we see where there's a Mary here or a Mary of Magdala here or the sister of Martha. We all of a sudden discount sometimes those narratives as somehow not factual or not fuzzy. Right, or as not enough. Right. right. And uh, and so, I mean, and, but I think part of what has happened in Christian tradition is, is just sort of natural human curiosity. Right. And, um, you know, and, and it, today... You know, when we look at Scripture, or when some Scripture scholars look at Scripture, they tend to take a very minimalistic view of things. They tend to want to strip it down. Mm-hmm. Centuries ago, people had the exact opposite reaction. They wanted to know, to sort of elaborate and meditate and create and and draw connections and all of that kind of thing. It's kind of a different mentality. You know, we're very stripped down and we just want the basics, but they wanted to see the connectedness of it all. And so I think that sort of, you know, encouraged people to, you know, see connections between all these different women mentioned in the gospel. And we do have something that's very precious to us in the church is the teachings of the early church fathers, because from their descriptions of Mary of Magdala, we we have a good sense of who they perceived her to be. Oh, yeah. And, you know, she's mentioned uh, very early on, as I said, second, third century, you start seeing, um, you know, various patristic writers at various church fathers referring to her. And and she's also depicted in art rather early um, as one of a group of women uh, accompanying, going to the tomb to anoint the body of Jesus. And when the early church fathers spoke of her, that is the context in which they spoke of her universally, was mm-hmm. as a myrrh-bearer, right. as a witness to the empty tomb. And rather early on, the um, title for her that evolved was Apostle to the Apostles. And because she is the one who took the good news to the apostles, and this is a title that stuck in the East. Mm-hmm. And um, when Eastern Christians and the Eastern Orthodox celebrate her feast, this is one of the names that they use for her as apostle to the apostles. I think where it starts to get messy is by the third century, when Gnosticism really starts to come into play, and the Gospels of Philip and Gospel of Thomas, and those those texts, which kind of start to distort it. Right, it gets messy for us, but I don't think it was very messy for the early Christians. <laughs> oh, well said, that's true. <laughs> because they, you know, knew that these works were heretical. They knew that they were recent creations. You know, these these I even I even don't like to call them gospels. I mm-hmm. call them Gnostic writings. Yeah. Um, you know, the, these um, texts that came out of Gnosticism, which was a, a movement not just in early Christianity, but just in, in the era and in the, in the area of the, uh, the ancient Near East and the Middle East, um, which was dualistic and um, uh, esoteric and, 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 and so on. And these writings that were produced that are kind of a, almost a, a meditation or an application of Gnostic principles to Christian principles. And, you know, people at the time, the Church Fathers, you know, from, you know, Tertullian and and so on, you know, they knew that these writings were, you know, fabricated and, you know, theological and philosophical speculation, and they understood that any mention of Mary Magdalene in these books was, you know, 
a manifestation of that. It's, you know, people today <laughs> that yep. get mixed up. You know, they don't understand that, you know, the historical value of, say, the Gospel of Philip or the Gospel of Mary in terms of the ministry of Jesus is not very high. <laughs> it's exactly. not high at all, you know. And, but they, they've sort of been, um, you know, tricked, I, I, you know, I want to say tricked into it by, you know, modern interpreters who sort of almost purposefully confuse dating issues uh, of the text and so on, who, um, who confuse people in terms of what these texts actually have to say about the first century and sort of make people think that they're all of equal value historically when they're not. Exactly. Oh, well, isn't there assumption on some of, even out of these Gnostic texts, as you, as you so appropriately call them, that they're assuming that even the Marys that are mentioned are, are Mary of Magdala. Right. And it may not be. Yeah, that's fascinating to me, and this is something that I uncovered in my research, is that there are several scholars out there now who are really questioning the assumption that the mention of Mary in all of these um, Gnostic writings refers to Mary Magdalene, because in some, and there are a few cases in which she is referred to as Mary of Magdala, mm-hmm. but most of the time there is just a Mary mentioned. And, you know, the question is, is this really a symbolic uh, name, or could it even sometimes, in some of these texts, refer to Mary the mother of Jesus? Mm-hmm. Because, for example, in the Syrian church, there, they, that church had a very, very high estimation of Mary, the mother of Jesus. Um, there is a text called the P.C. Sophia, which was rediscovered in the late 19th century and is very popular among people who like this kind of stuff, which refers to both Mary of Magdala and uh, Mary, the mother of Jesus. And, you know, the question comes, well, then, why don't folks want to maybe celebrate Mary, the mother of Jesus, in the same, you know, right. level as the modern people want to celebrate Mary of Magdala? And so there, there's all kinds of questions. When you actually read the text, and you read them critically, and you read them accompanied by good scholarship instead of popular, ideologically motivated stuff. Mm-hmm. You can see they're far more ambiguous than you know the modern interpreters would like to, you to think. They are far more sketchy. They're far more fragmented, and you know they re- it becomes clear how sort of dramatically they have been manipulated by modern interpreters who are you know want to suggest that. Mary Magdalene presents sort of an alternative Christianity. Right, we are talking with author Amy Welburn, her book, Decoding Mary Magdalene, Truth, Legend, and Lies. And though I've only had it for a couple days, the spine is broken, pages are all bent, and <laughs> <laughs> it's worked over fairly well. This is absolutely fantastic. Woke up this morning, she was reviewing last night, Amy, and she goes, where's my book, where's my book? <laughs> so I found it under a blanket. Oh, thank goodness. <laughs> There isn't a lot of scholarship. I mean, there are some very good books that you point out in your excellent bibliography in the back about Mary Magdalene. But I think for most folks, this is a saint who we really haven't had a lot of accessible resources for. No, especially not in in the modern period. You know, it's startling for people to realize that Mary Magdalene, by, you know, any estimation, was probably the second most popular saint of the Middle Ages after the Blessed Virgin. That's right. And, you know, she was the subject of tremendous devotion. And then after Vatican II, as is the case with many of our saints, you know, she sort of dropped off, you know, the radar for a lot of people for for several reasons. 
And there's been this resurgence of interest of her in recent years, and actually a lot of stuff written about her, but most of it is, you know, ideologically biased. Uh, which is why I wrote this book. It's because there really wasn't anything out there from, you know, mainstream, orthodox, Catholic perspective, sort of trying to just present the facts without, you know, twisting it or, you know, making it serve an agenda, making her serve an agenda. And I really thought, you know, that was really badly needed, and so I wanted to do that. I think what's wonderful, especially in the section called the Apostle to the Apostles, so often we hear that, that term and we think of that, that moment when she brought the good news to the apostles. But also you, you've you given us an insight of how the church really felt about her. And I thought one of the strongest reflections, something I had never thought about before, Amy, was the fact that Mary Magdalene was really, in many cases, considered a new Eve because she represented the church as the expectant bride seeking her bridegroom and how she waited in the garden. Yeah, and I think that goes back to what I was saying before about the, the way that early Christians interpreted scripture. You know, they were looking for connections. You know, they, they meditate on the image of, of Mary Magdalene waiting in the garden, um, you know, encountering the empty tomb. And of course they connect it to the earlier garden and another woman and so on. And so, yeah, even before Mary, the mother of Jesus, was seen as a new Eve, Mary Magdalene was. I think uh, for some folks, it, it does get a, even more confusing as we travel in this, this historical road. The teachings of Gregory the Great on Mary Magdalene and what people have interpreted Gregory the Great's teachings were. This is crucial. And even people who only have the most rudimentary understanding of all of this sort of have heard about what Gregory the Great preached mm-hmm. about yeah. Magdalene. I think it's mentioned in the Da Vinci Code, and, um, you know, it's, it's, it's out there. And in 591, Pope Gregory the Great preached a homily about Mary Magdalene. Right. And in this homily, he associated Mary Magdalene and, and suggested that she was the same woman as Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus, and also this woman in Luke chapter 7 mm-hmm. that I spoke of before. And people, modern people have grasped that homily and suggested that what Gregory the Great was trying to do in that was to demonize Mary Magdalene, was to call her a, you know, associate her with sinfulness and prostitution, mm-hmm. and to sort of discourage, um, you know, any anybody from thinking that Mary Magdalene should be seen as a model or a leader in the church or anything like that, you know, part of this, you know, patriarchal conspiracy, mm-hmm. when it's the opposite. Right. <laughs> You know, if you right. read this homily, you know, what you see is that Gregory the Great, first of all, he's sort of, he's not inventing anything from whole cloth. As I, as I said before, this speculation, these questions and these musings about all of these women had been percolating for a couple of centuries. And he brings it all together, and he holds this figure up as a wonderful model for all Christians. Mm. Not, and not just women, but all Christians, men and women, saying, look. Look what happens when we repent. Look what the power and the beauty of forgiveness is. Look how blessed this woman is. See, see, this is what, you know, the life of a Christian is. This is what, you know, this is the fruit that's there for all of us. That's not demonizing. That's <laughs> right. And, and it's, just, it's just crazy, and it's, and it's wrong to say that, you know, because there was this association made between Mary Magdalene and sinfulness and repentance, that the purpose of that was to make her look bad. No, <laughs> the purpose of it was to, you know, help all of us see 
what the power of the cross and the power of repentance does in the life of a Christian. And that really is truly a gift. I mean, once again, she's a saint that points us towards Christ and his healing and his love and his forgiveness. Exactly. And and that's what she was uh, revered for during the Middle Ages. As I said, she was very popular. You know, Mary, the Blessed Virgin, was very popular, too. But, you know, she was honored for her fidelity, for her, you know, participation in, in the sorrows related to the Passion and so on. But, you know, what since she did not sin, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, there was like a missing piece. And devotion to Mary Magdalene, you know, sort of provided that missing piece, you know, because... You know, there are certain aspects of the life of the Blessed Virgin that are attainable for us, you know, Mm -hmm. fidelity and so on. But, you know, I guess, you know, what evolved was the sense was, you know, Mary Magdalene, because she did sin and she repented, there's something else for us in the life of Mary Magdalene. And, you know, I think that was very important. And I think the other important thing to note is that a lot of times in in, in art, in medieval art, and, and even devotion, Mary Magdalene is presented as a model of repentance, but not by herself. She's often paired with Peter, right. um, especially in art. You know, you might see, um, you know, I, I went to an El Greco exhibit in, in New York City a couple of years ago, and he had several, a couple of sets of paintings of Mary Magdalene and Peter, both examples of repentance and, um, you know, forgiveness. Very good point. You know, you, when you spoke about the Middle Ages, I recall the, the, the section in your book where I read out loud to Bruce, we both started laughing. He's already laughing. When you pointed out that when we think of the Middle Ages, it's tempting to think of the period as a mere blip in time in which knights and serfs and monks and wenches traded in simplistic faith and ignorance, waiting for the light of the Renaissance and the Enlightenment. And you said, wrong, ignorant people, as a rule, do not build cathedrals. <laughs> right. Yeah, go try and figure a flying butt. I can't figure it out. <laughs> I, know. I know, and it, it's something that, um, you know, I think it's really important for us to remember, and it's the value of studying history. We just, my husband and I just uh, returned from a trip to Rome a few weeks ago, and um, my first, and you know, you know, it's astonishing. You know, when you uh-huh. you stand in the Pantheon or in the Colosseum and and you see these structures, and the same thought occurred to me. You know, we really we sell, you know, history short. We sell previous generations short instead of looking to them for the wisdom that they obviously had and can share with us today. Exactly. You break open a couple of important works for us. The Golden Legend being one of them, and and you point out now a lot of modern people will take those and make it their own. But as you point out in these legends, Mary Magdalene is devoted to the Jesus, not of her own making, but the Jesus of the Gospels. Exactly. And I think that's that's the valuable part of these. You know, obviously, you know, these legends are legends. Mm-hmm. And they emerge, you know, in the Middle Ages. They don't have any really connection to the first century. But they are like art. They're meditations on the truth of the Gospel. And so if we're trying to, like, discern between, say, the legends of the golden legend, these medieval collections, and say the legends of the Da Vinci Code. <laughs> right. you know, we're trying to say, well, what's the difference? Well, the difference is, is that the medieval legends is closely tied to the gospel. And Good to the, point. And, and it reflects that. It doesn't separate itself from that. It is, you know, like a meditation on that. Right, and, and Dan Brown couldn't be further from it. Right. <laughs> See, what's wonderful about your book, Amy, is that this can be used in, there are a lot of prayer groups out there, a lot of uh, book groups, a lot of study groups that can take this, and you provided questions on the, at the end of each chapter, 
for discussion, but also a wonderful index where you've gone through and you've pulled out many key passages about Mary of Magdala, and you've even offered up some of the other writings so they can compare. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think there is this mythology that is surrounds these Gnostic writings, you know, the the hidden Gospels, and, you know, they tell the truth that the Church doesn't want you to know and all that kind of stuff. And I just think it's really important for people to engage them directly. First of all, you know, you don't even have to look at my book. You can just go on the Internet and read all the Gnostic texts and, mm-hmm. you know, try to stay awake while you do it. <laughs> you know, turgid and, and dull and repetitive and all of that kind of thing. And I think people really, you know, if, if they're really interested in... Um, you know, finding out the truth. They, you know, there's no reason um, to to not just look at it directly. Um, and I think that um, you know the the contrast is is very telling. Yeah, and and really, in a lot of these uh, texts and writings too, the the Gnostic ones we're speaking of, uh, in assembling these and kind of putting them together, like uh, they did in in one passage in the Da Vinci Code. I mean, it, it's like Swiss cheese. There are gaps, words, whole thoughts missing from these things that people have just taken liberty with to virtually fill in whatever they want, isn't there? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I think the best example of that is the passage from the Gospel of Philip, I think, in which Jesus is described as kissing Mary Magdalene mm-hmm. on the mouth. And that's the quote that's in the Da Vinci Code. And when you actually read the passage um, with the fragmentation noted in the text, you'll see that it doesn't even say that. And, you know, not even taking into account the fact that in a Gnostic kind of sense, and even in the ancient Near East, a kiss in the context of a spiritual writing is not a sexual act. Mm-hmm. You know, it's an act through which, not in the Gnostic uh, context, in which knowledge is communicated. Um, you know, Christians greeted each other with a friendly kiss. Sure. You know, that was part of the liturgy in, you know, the early church. And so, yeah, if you let your sense of what these things mean be formed by ideologies and ideologues, you know, yeah, you're going to get a really warped sense of what they actually say. I think the the wonderful value in the work that you've done here, Amy, is that so many, there are many Da Vinci Code books, and I think yours is probably, Decoding Da Vinci is probably one of the best ones out there. Uh, again, because you, you are so good at getting to the point, cutting through all the fog and telling what people need to hear or read. But What's nice is that in most of those books, they cannot devote the time just because of the of the effort involved to do honor to this great saint. And you've done that in this book. Yeah. I mean, I, I really think that, um, you know, it's kind of, it was kind of a sad lesson for me when I actually, you know, finished my research there to, to compare, you know, how she was honored and, and devoted to. You know, how pe- devoted people were to her, and what benefit they got from devotion to Mary Magdalene, to compare it to today, when she's been hijacked, you know. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's time for us to really reclaim Mary Magdalene uh, among you know Orthodox mainstream Catholics. There is a big, gorgeous, beautiful church in downtown Omaha dedicated to Saint Mary Magdalene, and. I know that parish, among others, is, mm-hmm. has to value this because it, it, it is, even for some of those parishioners, it's heartbreaking what's happened in the last 40 years with Mary, oh, how, yeah. the, how, the, how she's been treated yeah, and, it's, and, and used. You know, and I think people really need to understand that all of these you know, people who are suggesting that Mary Magdalene was all about you know, an alternate Christianity, that she was a competitor to Peter and all of that kind of stuff, that's all untrue. Mm-hmm. You know, that's all a fantasy 
there is no basis for that in anything. And people really need to sort of understand that and be confident in that knowledge. Right. And certainly uh, you have to take exception with anyone like the Dan Browns of the world or anyone else uh, who thinks that Christianity or the Catholic Church in particular has done anything to uh, d- diminish her to you know some kind of lowly status or anything. Put her for in crying, the closet. Yeah, for crying out loud, she is a saint of the Catholic Church. That's right. Her feast day is July twenty second, <laughs> and um, you know it all goes back to that. You know, oh, the Catholic Church, you know, called Mary Magdalene a prostitute. Yeah. Well, no, no, not, no, no, not the case. <laughs> Are you getting tired of talking to Finchy? Actually, honestly, yeah. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, but it's just heating up, actually. Yeah. So, I'm, I mean, I've got stuff, you know, weekly from now until the time the movie comes out. But, you know, if I, if I can help educate people, it's all worth it. Well, God will definitely give you strength for this work, Amy. Uh, we know that because uh, there's, there's so many errors that have to be corrected here. And our hope and prayer is by uh, the time the movie's come and gone, we can put this thing to bed for a while. <laughs> I hope so. Now, tell me, you, you have something else coming out soon. Yes, I have a you know, part of the Da Vinci uh, Mall, I guess, <laughs> <laughs> is that I uh, have a, a short 100 questions and answers about the Da Vinci Code booklet that is being released very soon from our Sunday Visiting Press. And it's based more on, I did get access to the script, of, oh. and I don't know if it's the final shooting script of the film, but I did get access to a script and from a very reliable source. And so what I was able to do is really focus the questions and answers on the material that made it from the novel to the screen and not you know, worry about some of the other stuff. So it's, it's, it's a very handy little handbook. And that, and that will really address what's going on when the film ultimately mm-hmm. comes out. Yeah. Perfect. No, Perfect. And uh, with your permission, Amy, we're going to go ahead and put uh, an access archive this interview so that any of our listeners can at any other time, if they've... Uh, missed a portion or want to go back and refresh and while they're reading your book because i'm telling you folks we've only tip hit the tip of the iceberg you have not heard everything that needs to be said uh you can go to that online at kvss.com if that's okay with you amy that's great i'm honored All all right And uh, we'll do that. Hopefully you'll be back for the booklet, too, because I think the movie is, just like with any movie, it's going to twist what's in the book and who knows where they're going to go. Yeah, it's probably, it's just going to, I think, make it more vivid because yeah. that, that's what images do. Well, we'll we'll find out with Amy's 100 questions when that yeah. comes forth. <laughs> I'm still trying to recover from the cat in the hat after what they did with that. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> so, and the Grinch. <laughs> yeah, I have no idea what they're going to do. You know, I you just would love to, I, I, I have to say it, Amy, it, when I heard that Ron Howard was going to do this and Tom Hanks, it was like a kick in the stomach. Yeah, I think a lot of people feel that way. Yeah. I just, you know, two people you just you you really want to like, and they've done some quality work. I just don't get it. But yeah, and and listen, people might want to watch out for this. I was just actually yesterday doing a shareathon at our Catholic local Catholic radio station. And oh, one good. Of the women there um, is has a child in the public high school here, and she said that she had just heard that for their after prom party for the kids. In May, they were planning to take them all to see the Da Vinci Code. Oh, no, 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 no. no, And so she just heard about this, and she was getting ready to, you know, raise some cane about it. So, you know, people need to look out for, you know, organized school trips and all that kind of thing to see the Da Vinci Code. Yeah. Yeah, all it takes is some seeds, you know. Mm -hmm. But that's another talk for another day. We know you've got so much to do. But, Amy, it is always fantastic to have you with us. Oh, it's always great to be here, too. Thank you so much. Uh, Amy Walburn, and again, we want to encourage everyone to uh, pick up as quickly as possible 
a copy of uh, Amy's new book, Decoding Mary Magdalene, Truth, Legend, and Lies. Now, Amy, we're also going to have links on our, our website to your fantastic, fantastic blog, Open Book. I think it's the best Catholic blog out there, and I don't think you need to really go anywhere else, folks. Oh, thank you. Because you'll tell them where to go if they need to. <laughs> okay, thanks a lot, Amy. Thanks a lot. Appreciate it. Okay. God bless. Bye-bye.